0: Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, the canonization of Mary MacKillop and the secular and sectarian attacks. This February 2010 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday evening apologetics lectures at St Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Thanks very much, Arlette. In my current job, I actually have a lot of free time, from time to time. And when I'm sitting at my desk and surfing the net, I I like to look at what's happening in the newspapers, The Australian, The Herald, The London Times, etc. So, of course, when the news came out concerning uh, the second miracle being approved by the Vatican concerning uh, Mary MacKillop, and then all the immediate speculation about an upcoming canonization. It wasn't surprising that there was a flurry of newspaper articles, um, opinion pieces, and bloggers' comments concerning this event. Now, again, not surprisingly, um, when I'm looking at news articles, it's generally about 80 to 90% of hostility is what you encounter when you're dealing with religious issues in the media. That means that uh, when you've got about 200 comments about a story, you find definitely the vast majority, 160 plus, would be very negative against religion. And that, that was definitely the case with respect to the articles and the reports concerning, Blessed us say, Mary McKillop. Now, in a, being an apologetics organisation as we are here at lumen and supposedly Engage at least on a part-time basis of defending the faith, the thought came to my mind, well, we better do something about some type of formal response. You know, I got on the net and put my own blogger's comments there, etc. Whatever good that does, only God knows, of course. But I think it's important to have a, a formal talk and summarise many of these arguments, put them down as they appear directly in the media and respond formally. And I'll be doing this again in a few other places in March as well. So, let's start by way of introduction with a a few basic principles here. When we're dealing with canonization or beatification and we have terms like venerable, servant of God and all that, these are technical terms. For us as practising Catholics, we're very familiar with them. We take them for granted. But they're long words with many syllables and the general public out there really don't have a clue... You know, about the, the, the core meanings of these terms. So, I think by way of introduction, we should look at some of these words and, and have a brief understanding of what this whole canonization process entails before we actually look at the specific attacks and address them. So, what is meant by canonization? Well, we have the term canon of saints, we also have the canon of the Mass, we have the canon of the Bible. So the term canon actually means list, official list. So a canonization process in the Catholic Church is that process which identifies and confirms that a person should be added to the official list of saints in the recognized by the Catholic Church. It's as simple as that. Okay? Now This process, whatever you might read in the media, is actually very, very ancient. But it has undergone numerous changes over the many centuries. Officially, and originally, it was a process that was informal, but centred around the local bishop, gathering evidence about people who are martyred in, in his territory, in his city, in his town, in his diocese, etc. So if we go back to the ancient church, we find that the first canonizations, that is the first official recognitions of holy people, were martyrs, and I can give you one example right now from the second century. St. Polycarp was one of the great martyrs of the early church. He was actually martyred February the 23rd in the year 165 AD during the reign of the emperor Antoninus Pius. Thereabouts. No, Marcus Aurelius, the early years of Marcus Aurelius who succeeded Antoninus Pius. This was a high point in Roman civilization and Roman culture. Let's read a, a direct extract From the great document known as the Martyrdom of St. Polycarp. Quote Then this is the account of the Blessed Polycarp, who, being the twelfth that was martyred in Smyrna, which is a city in ancient Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and in brackets, reckoning those also of the city of Philadelphia, yet occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men insomuch that he is everywhere spoken of by the heathens themselves. He was not merely an illustrious teacher, but also a preeminent martyr, whose martyrdom all desired to imitate, as having been altogether consistent with the gospel of Christ. So what's important here in this account of the martyrdom of St. Polycarp is that he is recognised as the twelfth martyr, from that region. So what do we say? This part of the church, this local part of the ancient church, kept an official record, an official list of who were the recognised martyrs in that area. That's the canon. The canon of the saints of Smyrna. What was the process by which men or women or even children were added to that official list? Eyewitness accounts, testimonies of people who who knew St. Polycarp, witnessed his death, witnessed the glorious example of it, and then provided that information to the local authorities. Of course, that Polycarp was the local bishop, so he was dead. So they had to. It was presented to the rest of the clergy, and by voice of the people, vox popoli, it was unanimously declared. Or accepted that Polycarp should be numbered among the official list of martyrs. Now, do you notice here the benefits of having such a list? Occupies a place of his own in the memory of all men. Now, as Christians, our exemplar is Christ. But there's nothing to prohibit us having proximate examples of sanctity and heroism. And for our own benefit, we're inspired by people we know who've lived and died for Christ or who led lives of heroic sanctity, etc. We need that. We need these proximate examples. People that we know, familiar to us, close to us, who make Christ and his spirit immediately present to us. Now, of course... This process was common throughout the church and it was open to abuse even in the early centuries. And We have for example in the writings of St Cyprian of Carthage from North Africa and Augustine of Hippo a couple of centuries later also from North Africa in their writings we have them stating how important it was for bishops to ensure that they had a rigorous if not severe process to ensure that the faithful would venerate true saints. Because St Augustine, for example, and St Cyprian knew of people who were venerating individuals who were, in their minds, not really worthy of the title of martyr or confessor or saint. So, for us, our purpose is now, just to keep in mind at this initial stage, the early ancient process of canonising people related originally and exclusively to martyrs, those who gave up their lives for Christ. Then there was a shift in the 4th century and the reason for that was because the official persecutions lapsed and then eventually ended completely. And so the Holy Spirit inspiring people would move people to other forms of heroism, And we had developing in rapid pace, particularly in the Middle East, in Egypt, Syria, Palestine, Lebanon, etc. The movement of hermits, then monks, and we had uh, what we call the white martyrdom. People who would sacrifice themselves for Christ without shedding their blood, but sacrifice their freedom, their right to marry, their right to private property, or would perhaps just suffer for the faith without dying, confess as they began to become known. And so we had in the 4th century the move towards recognising formally, canonising these other types of heroes in the church. And the process involved uh, having their names read during the liturgy What's called reading their names from the diptychs. The diptychs were, or uh, well, here's an example, if I just turn to my left here. This is a triptych. Okay, three try for three. This would rest on an altar during the liturgy and be read from. So a diptych would be two pieces, opening like a book, and from there the official prayers, recognizing, or prayers of the faithful prayers for the local bishop, prayers for the legitimate authorities would be read from, but also remembering those who were officially canonised in that part of the church, in that region of the world, who deserved recognition and memory in the official worship of the church. So if, if you, you knew you were canonised in a particular local church if your, names were, if your name was read from the diptych during the liturgy, Or, or in addition to that, you had a memorial that was built over your tomb and it was recognised as an official place of pilgrimage and prayer. Now things began to change slowly over the centuries when you get certain saints who were so popular, they were recognised and venerated beyond the local diocese, beyond the local town or city and so it began to involve uh, more than one bishop's jurisdiction. And so by the early Middle Ages there was felt a need for an authority that could recognise a saint, recognise a martyr, a confessor, someone of heroic virtue who was famous and being uh, privately and unofficially already venerated Across many dioceses, across a whole country, or even various countries, regions, etc. And so that's, and you can imagine, the mind of people in those centuries turning, looking for such an authority would naturally turn to the universal authority of the Bishop of Rome. okay? We need someone who we can trust, who can give an authoritative pronouncement, to canonise someone who was popular over many regions. And so we have the first papal canonization of a saint outside the city of Rome. So let's get this clear here. A pope who is recognising someone's heroic sanctity and adding their name to the official canon or list of saints, someone who is outside the diocese of Rome, it was by Pope Leo III in the year 804, so the early 9th century. And the candidate was a Saint Swidbert of Germany, who died in the year 713. Now, that didn't mean that local canonizations by local bishops, archbishops, metropolitan, extinguished overnight. They would still continue for some centuries. And actually, in the canon law of the Eastern churches in union with Rome, there's still provision there to allow local, what we call ethnarchs, local eparchs, sorry, um, and metropolitans in the Eastern church to still have a formal recognition ceremony of their local saints. But it's just not done that way anymore. I think the Easterners are very happy to have their saints recognised by the Pope, so that could be recognized universally. The last official canonization conducted by a local ordinary of a saint in their own diocese was by the Archbishop of Rouen in France of Saint gautlier G-A-U-L-T-I-E-R, if you want to look it up, in the year one, 1153, so the middle of the 12th century. But after that date, we don't have any record of canonizations at a local level conducted by a local ordinary. We have 20 years after that, in 1173, Pope Alexander III, and this is emanating from one of the Lateran Councils, that would have been the Third Lateran Council, uh, establishing a more elaborate, centralised, formal Roman procedure. Concerning the examination of candidates for recognition, uh, for recognition of their heroic sanctity, etc. Now, I'm not going to go into any more detail about how this process developed over the next eight centuries or so. We'll jump right through to our modern time, Pope John Paul II in 1983, when he issues new legislation with respect to the Roman process of canonization. It was a document divinus, Perfectionis magister. Now, you're all familiar with the following terms, servant of God, venerable, blessed and saint. So let's now briefly have a look at what's involved at each of these stages. Okay, well the general rule and these are all legal rules of the Church, what we call positive law of the Church, ecclesiastical positive law. It's legislation that the Pope himself has brought into place to, to regulate this whole process. What, by what authority does the Pope have to make such legislation? I'm jumping the gun here a little bit because this is one of the accusations that's thrust against the Catholic Church. It's the power of the keys. Given by Christ to St. Peter to bind and loose. It's that general delegated authority to the Bishop of Rome or St. Peter and his successors that the Pope uses here to make and unmake the rules concerning the canonization process. So the rule is, first of all, that the candidate for canonization must be dead for at least five years before any process can commence. Now, you might remember that we've had two exceptions to that in very recent times. Can anyone name one of them? Pope John Paul II actually has been exempt from his own rule. Not by him, of course, because he's dead, but by Pope Benedict XVI has exempted uh, John Paul II. And John Paul II himself uh, issued an exemption for Mother Teresa of Calcutta. Okay. So there has to be a five year wait. And you can just, uh, let's have an example here. Imagine there's one famous, uh, one person of um, notoriety for their holiness in a particular diocese. So maybe it could be family, it could be friends, it could be priests or religious, or a religious order would actually clamour the local bishop to open an investigation. And so it rests with the local bishop to first gather as much information as he can concerning the candidate, everything the candidate ever wrote, any record of what the candidate ever said, interviewing everyone who knew the candidate that's still alive, conversations that they had with them, correspondence that they had with them. Anything and everything that could relate to the life of that person, that could be enormously exhausting. And some of these processes, just at this stage, could take many, many, many years. And it could also necessitate an investigation into any alleged miracles uh, during the life of the candidate or since the death of the candidate, where that candidate has been invoked by private individuals in their own personal devotions seeking the intercession of that candidate before the throne of God for for favours. And so any evidence relating to any miracles that that are claimed to be attributable to the candidate's intercession must also be gathered at this early stage. Once the bishop believes he has gathered everything possible then he will present the brief to the Congregation for the Causes of Saints in Rome. And at this point, the candidate has the title, Servant of God. So what does that mean, when you're a servant of God? Well, that's about it at the moment. Nothing more can happen uh, by way of uh, feasts, churches named after you, official prayer cards being issued, etc. Not at this stage. Now, once the Congregation for the Causes of Saints has the brief, then they'll basically ensure, reinvestigate, that they have all the information they can concerning the candidate. Maybe the bishop thought he had it all, but then other things come to light. It's the essential purpose, the initial purpose, of the Congregation of Saints to look into the life of the candidate, to search for whether the candidate, now the servant of God, practiced or exhibited virtue to a heroic degree. And this is an important term here. Did the candidate practice heroic sanctity? Did they exhibit all the theological and moral virtues in their lives? If you don't know what they are, Theological virtues, faith, hope and charity. The moral virtues, temperance, fortitude, prudence, justice. That's not the right order, but that's what they are. Now, you notice here what's important, that we're dealing with candidates as to whether they practice heroic sanctity, not ordinary holiness. That could be us the ordinary holiness, and many, many, countless of millions throughout the 20 centuries of the church, known to God. The reason for this is the church wants to put forward proximate examples of people who really exhibit virtue to a degree that would inspire us to rise in our lives. Okay, This is what this process is all about. And we'll revisit this point later on, when we particularly have a look at the, the, the controversial comments of the Anglican Bishop of North Sydney with respect to the Mac- MacKillop canonization. Now, once the congregation, and we'll be positive here, determines yes, the servant of God in question did exhibit heroic sanctity, practiced all the virtues, or theological moral virtues, then they will be declared to be venerable. Okay. So we have, uh, we've got, uh, Blessed Mary McClellan has gone through that stage, Cardinal Newman has just passed through that stage. So if someone is declared venerable, what's, what happens then? Well, they're still not entitled to a feast day in their honour. They're still not entitled to have a church named in their honour. There's no statement as to whether that candidate is in heaven or not, enjoys a beatific vision or not. No statement there. But prayer cards are permissible to be issued relating to the candidate, seeking the prayers of the candidate or asking the faithful to pray for the candidate's eventual canonization. Alright. Now, the next step, as you're probably familiar with, is the step of blessed. Many years have passed on now, and the venerable candidate, people want him to, you know, move, or him or her, to move to the next step. What essentially must the church ask for now is a miracle. Okay, and this is what's very controversial in the media at the moment with regards to a Blessed Mary McKillop. The church won't move to declare the Venerable to be blessed unless we have a miracle that is attributable to the Venerable's intercession. We've done the hard yards already investigating the whole life of the candidate. Everything they were known to have said and done and written, we know that they practice heroic virtue and really the bottom line, just to backtrack a little bit the bottom line, a person is a saint for that reason, practicing heroic virtue, practicing the theological and moral virtues in their lives. They are not saints, they are not holy because they did miracles either during their life or after their death through their intercession before God. The power to perform miracles is a grace, a charism given by God to an individual as a free gift for them to use to sanctify others. It doesn't necessarily mean that the possessor of the charismatic gift of miracles themselves is necessarily holy. okay. And no one is regarded as holy because they did miracles. Now, so what's the role of miracles here? We'll come to that very soon. Now, when we talk about miracle, what do we mean here? What are some of the basic requirements? Now, it's normally now, more commonly now, when we talk about miracles, when we're searching for miracles through the intercession of this venerable Candidate, we're normally, it's now normally restricted in practice to miraculous cures. It doesn't have to be in principle, but it normally is. They're the easiest to establish. So, what are the basic prerequisites? before the church will recognise a miracle to enable someone to be moved from the Venerable to the Blessed and again from the Blessed to the sainthood, Well, the person who is claiming to have received the favour through the intercession of the candidate must have been, one, sick, two, there was no known cure for the ailment in question. Three, prayers were directed to the Venerable and to no other saint or candidate. I could be praying to God and Christ and the Holy Spirit, the Father the Son, that's all fine, that's okay, but at the time when I was seeking the divine favour, I was only invoking one Person, one human person, the Venerable, and no other saint, canonized, blessed, or anyone else, because it has to be absolutely clear cut in the mind of the Church that the favor that was obtained from God was obtained through the intercession of the Venerable only. In question, you have a question. Well, um, it's rather topical at the moment. Many of us are praying to. Killed for a miracle, a it's very tempting when everyone's saying the rosary. Right? That's and right. This, well, you know, I, I've been told that you can't even be praying the Hail Mary mm-hmm. at this particular time. Mm-hmm. Okay, when at the moment when the miracle occurred, let's be confident about this point for certainty. At the time that the miracle was received or the favor was received, the person was only invoking. That venerable, no one, no one else at the time, at that moment. Okay, they could have been praying the rosary the day before. That's fine, right? But at the time, the alleged oh, miracle occurred the with that intention. Mm. I'm not sure exactly how far away other prayers to other saints have to be, but one thing I do know is that. Only the Venerable at that time when the miracle was received or the favour was granted was being imposed. Alright? The next point, of course, is that the patient who was sick, who was invoking the Venerable, was cured. That the cure was spontaneous, meaning there was no other external element at all responsible or possibly responsible for this cure then it has to be instantaneous. The cure has to happen at the blink of an eye, so to speak. Not a prolonged regression, for example. It has to be a complete cure and a lasting cure. And the doctors who are treating the sick person at the time, and this is an important point about the doctors, they're not necessarily Catholic, or practicing Catholic, they're certainly not agents or working on behalf of the church. They are just normal doctors, specialists, working in the medical profession of any religious persuasion or none at all, who just happen to be treating the sick person at the time. That they themselves have to verify that that the sick person was truly sick seriously sick, no natural cure was possible, and no natural explanation can be given for the spontaneous and instantaneous and complete cure that has occurred. So really here you see that the church has to rely on the evidence of medical professionals that are really objective and have nothing to gain by whether... As to whether any Catholic candidate for sainthood is actually canonized or not. In fact, some of these medical professionals could be at least surprised, or if, or even embarrassed, if something that they were certain the patient was suffering from was terminal, and then suddenly it's not even there. So that's the case with regards miracles to advance a candidate to the blessed stage and to the sainthood stage. So once someone is uh, once the church approves a miracle and a person now is going to be declared to be blessed what's, what's their status? Well, now since the time of Pope Benedict uh, the ceremony is conducted by a cardinal only, not the Pope anymore. I think it's a good move to differentiate uh, beatifications from canonizations because essentially, externally, they, they seemed like very similar events. I went to a beatification in 1998 of the Lebanese Maronite Saint Blessed Nemtallah Hadidini. It's just, for all intents and purposes, just like a canonization ceremony in a big event in Rome and St. Peter's the Pope, and it, the pronouncements are read and everyone's happy and cheering, etc. So, now it's done locally. I relate Lebanese saints because that's my background Uh, just recently in the last 18 months or so we had in Lebanon a beatification conducted by a cardinal of a Lebanese um, uh, saint, well blessed now, Jacob of Gazir who was a Capuchin and that was conducted in Lebanon itself. So now with that particular uh, blessed and all blesseds, we have um, a local cult and veneration is permissible. A local feast is permissible. So, in the case of Jacob of Gazir, for example, uh, in Lebanon, a local cult and veneration is permissible, and um, a feast day will be, you know, in the part of the liturgical calendar in Lebanon and all Maronites. But at this stage, still, no church can be named in his or her honor for blessed. But it is permissible for the faithful to believe, it's worthy of belief, that the candidate is in heaven. But It's not an infallible pronouncement of this stuff. Now, with regards to sainthood, moving Blessed Mary MacKillop and any other blessed to the next stage, of course, all we need is another uh, substantiated miracle. And that's what's happened. With Blessed Mary MacKillop, the two miracles, the one that was accepted for her beatification, which occurred in 1995, was a miracle that, was, that occurred in 1961, where the, um, the patient or the sick person invoked her for a cure for leukaemia. At that time, no cure for leukaemia. The person was terminal, invoking only... Uh, Mary McKillop, that person was spontaneously and instantaneously and completely cured of the leukemia. 1993, the candidate, who's alive today, and we've seen her in the, in the media, etc., she was likewise cured of lung cancer. And she's still alive and kicking today, as you see in the media. And that's another aspect of the miracle. It has to not only be complete, it has to be lasting. That's important as well. So when someone is declared a saint, they're a saint now for the universal church. Not just someone that can be venerated in the local church or in a particular rite only. Uh, A universal feast day is established for them. Churches can be named in their honour. There's no restriction on public veneration. And such declarations by the Pope are to be definitively held by all the faithful and are infallible. And included in the declaration, in the canonization is a declaration that the blessed now saint is definitely in heaven before God. All right. Now that's just the introduction which has gone on for long enough. Alright, now let's look at the attacks now because time is moving quickly and I've got a lot of detailed text here and I do apologise in advance, but I do want to read for your benefit to know the depth of the attacks that were occurring in the public media and they're not going to go away. They're going to be there might be another series of media commentaries next week in response to the date that's about to be announced. And definitely, if the canonisation ceremony is going to be in September, October, we're going to get a whole flurry of attacks again. First one is from Peter Fitzsimons from the Sydney Morning Herald, December 17, 2009. And as I noticed, that some of us are perhaps giggling when I mention his name because his credentials said he was a football, a rugby union player. Now, Part-time theologian, perhaps. He wrote the story. Saint Kevin should get the hell out of it. That was the title of his story. Now, this is reading from direct, and I'll interject while I'm reading. Now, firstly, he wants to relate his experiences with, sorry, mother trees of Calcutta when he was in India in 1982. Okay, to launch an attack before he gets onto Blessed Mary MacKillop. With me, I heard with my own ears the heroine of Calcutta deny she was a saint. I have written it in the herald before, and yet somehow I have never been invited by the Catholic Church to testify in her beatification process as part of her journey to sainthood. And of course, Mother Teresa was right. She wasn't a saint. She was an extraordinary woman who accomplished amazing things and was a powerful force for good. But was her spirit possessed of God-like powers to heal the terminally ill, where medical science had failed? Did that spirit really pull off two miracles, Catholicism's new cut-rate requirement for sainthood after bringing it down from three, And that was John Paul II who did that when he brought in the new legislation in 1983. It used to be one for beatification, two for canonization, And the Pope has that power, as I mentioned earlier, the power of the keys. Now Peter continues, of course it wasn't. And of course it didn't. Here is a news flash. Individuals even really worthy religious ones, are not capable of curing terminally ill patients by using their godlike powers. Now let's interject here. Theologian Peter Fitzsimons, uh, I don't know where he gets his uh, theology from, but uh, for us I can see some of us are giggling and laughing, it's because we know that humans inherently don't have the power to perform miracles. It is, as I stated earlier, a charism, it's a gift from God, a gift of the Holy Spirit that's given to particular individuals. I mean, what do we make of miracles in the Old Testament? Moses, Elijah. In the New Testament, St. Peter, St. Paul. Even the handkerchiefs and aprons of St. Paul performed miracles. Even the shadow of St. Peter, we read in Acts 5. Acts 19 for St. Paul, Acts 5 for St. Peter. They performed miracles that healed cripples. Now we know that's not an inherent power in those men. It's a charism from God. God is the first cause, the principal cause of all miracles. We as humans, whether St. Peter, St. Paul, M- M- Blessed Mary, MacLeod, any other saint in history, is merely a secondary instrument in the process now, Peter goes on to say, this is even less likely after that individual has died. It is a nonsense and a transparent one. Well, why is it even more so if the person has died? Common to all these critics you'll hear tonight is a fundamental misunderstanding of the, or non-understanding of the status of a deceased person. They look at the dead as we would look at Rookwood Cemetery. The dead are just dust and bones in a box buried six foot under in dirt at Rookwood, as crooked as Rookwood. That's how they view the dead. The Catholics and the Church view the dead in the light of Christ's response, that God is the God of the living. When asked about Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, God is the God of the living, not of the dead. The deceased in Christ are alive. And we're not talking about necessarily them themselves performing the miracle, but of their intercession before the throne of God, petitioning God on our behalf through Christ at the right hand of the Father to obtain this favour, this miracle. Uh, Then he goes on about uh, Blessed Mary MacKillop. Lately, though, there have been a Twitter in these parts because Australia's own version of Mother Teresa, Mother Mary MacKillop, is herself apparently well on the way to being canonised as Australia's first saint, whereby she will suddenly be attributed as possessing divine powers, never apparent in an actual life, that was actually built on selfless devotion and relentless hard work. The, the announcement by Rome and the canonization of Blessed Mary MacKillop is not going to be at all saying that suddenly Mary MacKillop has divine powers. All it says is that she's a saint because of her life of heroic virtue, and God has confirmed through miracles that he has performed through her intercession. That's all it's about. And Peter goes on to say, it would be all laughable if only were we allowed to laugh out loud at religious absurdity. But unfortunately, the laugh is on Peter Fitzsimon for his fundamental and total misunderstanding of the whole Catholic process of canonization and what it means and what it is saying about Mary MacKillop. We can't, because once you start, it's very hard to stop. And people get very upset. They are allowed to say we atheists will and deserve to burn in hell for all, our, all eternity because of our beliefs. And yet somehow we are not allowed to say that their beliefs are, say, a tad on the embarrassingly medieval side of things. Well, actually, there's no one stopping them saying or hurling their insults and we, we, here's the evidence. He's doing it. But this, my last point about what Peter Fitzsimon said is the term medieval. That reappears in almost all the articles. To just dismiss this whole canonization process and the Catholic Church with it is just to label it as medieval. And that goes back to a relic of the Protestant Reformation. With every revolution that happened. You have to disparage completely what was before you and blacken its history. And for the the, the the Reformation movement as a whole, and particularly in England, had to mock and belittle the medieval period, the medieval centuries. Why? Because they are essentially Catholic. And this—I don't know what Fitzsimon's religious background is or was. He's atheist now, by the look of it but he's probably inherited some cultural baggage whereby the medieval just is the Dark Ages. And we don't want to head back to those periods, of, that period of ignorance. Then we move on to another commentator in the Herald, Peter Cochran, January 14, 2010, in an article entitled Act of God Requires Giant Leap of Faith. He goes on to say, there could be no scientific proof that a dead person, Mary McKillop, again, you notice he was on a dead person. This is to tell us that you know, their, their image of dead is, as I said before, just in the tomb. Has the power of intercession with God and further has persuaded God to do something. So just to repeat that, he's saying there's no scientific proof that any dead person has an intercessory power with God. But is this the realm of science? Or is the realm of faith? But the proof is lies in the spontaneous and instantaneous and total, complete, miraculous cure or cure of someone with a terminal illness that has no natural explanation. And who is saying it has no natural explanation? The church? No. The church making that declaration based on the evidence of the doctors and the specialists who have already come to that conclusion. So, let's work from that point. Let's, we, haven't, we, we believe in the intercessory power of saints and them I mean by virtue of faith and what evidence we can gather from Scripture. For example, how do we know people in heaven can pray? go to Revelation chapter 6 where we find the martyrs under the altar praying to God, beseeching God to take vengeance on those who wrought their martyrdom. How do we know that the dead are alive? Well, the parable of Debes and Lazarus given to us by Christ has Lazarus being taken by the angels to a place of happiness. And as Debez going into the burning pit of hell and beseeching Abraham, who talks to him and answers him, Abraham was dead. And what about on Mount Table, when Christ appears with Moses and Elijah? Moses was dead. Moses had been dead for 13 centuries nearly. Here's Christ talking to him. And what about in Luke 15 when we're told that the angels rejoice over one sinner that repents. Well, where do these living spirits who have died but continue on in spirit, alive, where do they go? They go to the same heaven. Why, why can't they have a knowledge and solicitude about us here on earth? How do they get that knowledge when they behold God, the beatific vision? God infuses knowledge into them of matters on earth that would be relevant pertinent to them. Anyway, he goes on, Peter Cochran goes on to say, we are told about vast amounts of documentation and an exhaustive and thorough examination that are arrived at a conclusion that is beyond doubt. Well, uh, The actual um, congregation of the cause of the saints when issuing the decree of heroic sanctity when the candidate becomes a venerable must produce a biography, a detailed biography, on the life of the candidate. That's for the public record. The public record to examine, to see, for the critics to see, the life of the candidate. Everything they said and did. And any miracles that were said to have occurred during their life or through their intercession afterwards. And they want to have access to the medical records. Well, they're Well, no one really has a free license to access people's medical records. They're subject to doctor-client privilege. Now, the only reason why, for example, the lady in question now who received the miraculous cure for her lung cancer, those medical records can be given to the Vatican for examination is through her permission. If she wants to, it's up to her. She could give that permission to release that information to the public. But if people want to say that this process is arcane, that is, secretive and hidden, not accessible to the public, and thereby question its credibility, should know of the many claims of alleged miracles that are put before the Vatican that are not accepted. You know, you can presume a level of integrity by the very fact that these processes often take decades. And in Mary MacKillop's case, nearly 85 years. The Vatican was dishonest or fraudulent in this process. You would expect uh, a machinery that would be turning over saints a lot quicker than that and accepting a lot more of the miracle or the alleged miracles that were put before it. For example, in Australia, the Sophie Delizio case was said to be put forward as a miracle by Mary McKillan, that the girl survived. That was rejected. A a well-known personality in Australia, a popular person. Everyone was happy when she, you know recovered from her accident. But the Vatican said, no, no, that doesn't fulfill the requirement here, the strict and rigorous requirement of spontaneous, instantaneous, total, complete, lasting. Anyway, he goes on to say, it seems the church is reluctant to acknowledge a medical appreciation of the unlikely recovery from terminal illness called spontaneous remission or regression. It has been the subject of occasional scientific scrutiny for decades, beginning, so far as I know, in 1966 with W.H. Cole and T.C. Everson's spontaneous regression of cancer. So the accusation here is that the Vatican is ignoring all this scientific and medical evidence of the fact that there are cases where people with a presumably, or originally presumably, uh, terminal cancers, suddenly go into remission, suddenly go into regression. And Peter Cochran's implying, well, that could be the case with these alleged miracles concerning Mary MacKillan. The Vatican's ignoring all that. The Vatican's not ignoring all that. It has no part to play here. By the very words of Peter Cochran, he says the unlikely recovery from terminal illness called spontaneous remission or regression. The Vatican is not interested in remissions or regressions that take time. The Vatican is interested only in accepting as a miracle an instantaneous disappearance, not a remission or a regression over time. So there might be these unexplained, natural instances where cancer suddenly retreats, goes into remission, a regression, but they will never be accepted as valid, as acceptable miracles in the eyes of the Vatican, because they're not instantaneous. And they might not even be complete and lasting. They might come back after just a few years. But I was up with this question. Why do these spontaneous, instantaneous, complete and lasting miracles only seem to happen to people with faith? To people who are praying and who are praying at the time, who are often desperate and have no other recourse, natural, medical, scientific, etc. It happens to them, but you don't. Show me the cases, show us the cases of a spontaneous Instantaneous, total, complete disappearance of a cancer for an atheist. There might be a one in 60,000 or a one in 100,000 case of an unexplained remission, regression, but not one case of an instantaneous disappearance with no explanation. Then Peter Coppen goes on to say, What we have seen is not miracle but mystery. No, sorry we're seeing both, miracle and mystery. Miracle, because the very specialists and the doctors treating the person who's cured, they themselves are saying there is no natural explanation. No scientific medical explanation. And mystery, because why did God happen to choose this person and not that person? This is a criticism we'll meet very soon. God seems to be very capricious. Why does he cure some people but the majority are not? Well, that's the mystery part. And we're going to answer that briefly right now by saying that God, we are all subject under a general law because of original sin. That's the law of death. And preceding that, labour, pain, sickness, suffering, decrepitude, followed by death. That is the general law that has fallen upon humanity because of original sin. God will only make an exception for extraordinary reasons. And here, because he wishes that certain servants of his, for the glory of God, be publicly acknowledged for their sanctity. But also, miracles would only be granted by God to extend an individual's life as an extension to the law of death that has come upon humanity. If it's for the benefit of that person's salvation. So that's the mysterious side of it. These are things only God can know and judge and determine and grant. Then Peter Cochran goes on to say, Over the years, one by one, miracles of one kind or another have succumbed to rational explanation. Please give examples. He doesn't give any examples. If you're ever going to write a thesis one day for any university, you put that statement like that in a research paper, it'll be tossed. Where uh, okay, you're saying that alleged Catholic miracles have are no longer miracles because we've found natural explanations. Can you please provide examples? None given. Yet today, the church is working overtime to reinstate medievalism. Here's the term again. Oh, how terrible. Medieval. I once made a joke once to my students. I'd rather be medieval than fully evil. But that's, <laughs> that's, so that's, that's not really an, an academic to say that. But nevertheless, but you see what they're trying to say here. Look, you know, we've moved on, guys. This is the modern age. It's the 21st century. To believe in miracle is for superstitious and ignorant people. That's the medieval period. I do not want to, the considerable worldly achievements of Mary MacKillop to be lost in such hocus-pocus. Hopeless, hopeless. There's another term. There's another reformation term against Catholicism. The first one, medieval Disparage that term. Second one, hocus pocus. That's what the mass, that's what they call the mass. The most massive hocus pocus, because in Latin, words of consecration, hoc est corpus meum. So that sounds like hocus pocus. That's where it originates from. Peter says to conclude, by all means honour her life and work, but the church should stop campaigning for the supernatural and put its time, money and effort into cancer research. Well, let me tell you something, Peter. The church does do that. The church throughout the world has numerous hospitals. Look at St. Vincent's here in Sydney alone. We have the specialists of the highest colour who do work in cancer research at a level unsurpassed anywhere else in Australia. And dare I ask, what money does Peter Cochran give from his own self to help in cancer research? Okay, we've dealt with Peter Cochran there. Then we move on to um, Philip Alman, Professor of Religion, University of Queensland. He's an academic of calibre. The Australian, January 30, 2010 quote, the story is, miracle cures threaten to put God in the dock. That is on trial. And he goes on to say, okay, there appears to be a general acceptance that miracles do happen to people diagnosed with incurable diseases. That these are the result of the direct action of God at the behest of dead persons. You see again, dead person? He's getting it a little bit more accurate now. He's a professor of religion. He has an understanding of Catholicism, I'm sure. And he's getting it at least partially correct. That God is doing the miracles at the behest of dead persons. Who, as a result of goodness in their lives on earth, apparently have a lot of influence in heavenly places over what happens down here. He's getting a little bit mocking there, but it's the spirit of what we read near the end of the epistle of St James, in the scripture, in the the New Testament. Basically, it's clear there that God does hear the prayers of holy people and he gives the example of the prophet Elijah. Now, what what does he say now? Hold on to your hats. It's as if we've taken off our modern thinking caps and gone all medieval. Number three again. You see, when we're thinking, we're modern. And when we're not thinking, we're medieval. And people who believe in miracles and cures are not thinking. They're medieval. He goes on to say, The problem of the God of the gaps, it is always a theologically risky procedure to plug God in as an explanation where science fails. This is for the simple reason that if a scientific explanation were to come about tomorrow, the miracle would then be shown not to have occurred. Now, he's echoing what we just heard with Peter Cochran. But the Catholic Church has never taught a God of the gaps. Meaning, for things we don't understand, we attribute the explanation to God. The Church is not against science, despite the popular calumnies that are out there. The Church welcomes the discovery of all these wonderful laws in biology, physics, chemistry, and all the sciences, which we're still discovering as we speak. And doesn't conclude that therefore God has been pushed away further and further out of the picture, but concludes that God is still there, not as the God of the gaps, but the God of first calls, the God who is the author of all these laws that are operating in the universe we live in. And again, I challenge Philip Almond in the same way as Peter Cochran. Give us examples where a scientific explanation has come to light today that has disproven a miracle of the past. He makes a statement again, like Peter Cochran, but again gives no example of such a case. He goes on to say, the second reason to be sceptical has to do with God's apparent disinclination to intervene more often. If God can heal the sick on one occasion, why is he not more active on other occasions of incurable illness? And I've already answered that, but just for the sake of repeating it, it's because the general law applies at first instance. That is, because of our rebellion against God, we are subject now to to nature, the law of labour, and the law of death. God will only intervene, not at our whim, when we demand it, but when there is a serious reason for his glory and for the good of the soul in question. You see, when it comes to pain, sickness, suffering, decrepitude, and death, God has intervened in the most emphatic and personal way for everybody. And that's through Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life, death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. The full fruits of that have yet to be applied. The most important immediate fruit is that we are made back into friendship with God through sanctifying grace. But God doesn't see death as the worst of evils. He sees sin as the worst of evils, and he's already provided a solution for everyone through Christ and his church. The other evils due to sin, death for example, will be conquered at the end of the world, with the general resurrection of the dead. And then everyone will be cured of every illness, of every sickness, of every pain, of every suffering, of every decrepitude humanity has ever suffered, will be conquered. We can't see it now. That is the promise that awaits us. We have Christ as the first fruits of that. His Blessed Mother as the second fruit of that. And at the end of the world, all of that, all of us, all the just will gain the fruits of that. But again, that does take faith I admit. But it doesn't mean the following. God's apparent disinclination to act as often as he might and probably should, was why should? That's us dictating to God. Raises awkward questions about either his willingness to act or his capacity to do so. So he's basically saying if there was a God and God was loving, he would be acting all the time to people who ask. And, it's, and he gives another example, which I didn't include here, but I remember... That, you know, it's terrible to teach children to pray for cure for illness and then they don't get it because they'll be adding to their pain, the disappointment. But a proper catechesis of children would, tell them, would teach them not just to pray, but to submit to God's will and God's ultimate plan, which is greater for us than simply perhaps being cured at that time. And we have here another criticism. And if he could act on occasion to cure illnesses... Why can't he intervene to stop earthquakes and other natural disasters? Well, when you look at the cases in question, the people who are claiming to have received a miraculous cure are not asking for anything else. They're not asking, can you stop earthquakes and other disasters? Okay, We are subject to earthquakes and natural disasters for the same reason we are subject to illness, sickness, suffering, death, etc. Exactly, because we only are now subject to nature as a common humanity, when we all fell with Adam. Now, then, because he's a professor of religion, he knows about the beliefs of non-Catholic Christians and says the following, Protestantism countered, that is, countered Catholicism and its claims of miracles and saints, not by attempting to score more miracles. This is classical Protestantism in the 16th century, not Benny etc and their claims. Protestantism countered by taking its bat and ball home. It denied the doctrine that the saints intercede to God on our behalf. That's true, he's correct there. And it argued that the Age of Miracles had ceased at the end of the New Testament times. And that's true, that was Calvin. Specifically, Calvin's doctrine of cessationism, the Age of Miracles has ceased. It ceased with the death of the last apostle. But Calvin's problem in arguing for cessationism and arguing for solar scripture at the same time is that the two beliefs are incompatible. Because if you're going to believe in cessationism, you have to show that it's in Scripture. There's nothing in Scripture that indicates at all that miracles were to cease with the death of the last apostle. Nothing to indicate that at all. In other words, Calvin breaches a sole scripture principle, that is such a belief, that is, cessationism, isn't, isn't in Scripture. And, and finally, Philip says that Protestantism also declared that all Christians, or at least all Protestants, were saints. I won't treat with that now because that's the essential core objection of the Anglican Bishop of North Sydney. You know, go into all this trouble declaring Mary McCillob is a saint, but Scripture says that all believers in Jesus who've had their sins forgiven are saints. Okay, we'll deal with that in a bit more detail later. Now, we move on to, we've got um, quite a few more com- comments, so we need to hurry, but Paul Collins, you'll know who Paul Collins is, if you don't, he used to be a Catholic priest and commentator for the ABC, but officially no longer he's laicized now but still very active, and he wrote for the Herald, the Fairfax Press, which appeared in the Herald and the Age, January 13, 2010. This was his title. Becoming a Saint. Who makes it and who doesn't? This is a political commentary. Saying that the Vatican process is corrupt because it it favours persons of certain political persuasions only over others. He opens with this comment. Like everything in the Vatican, saint-making has political implications. You don't become a saint just because you're holy or died a martyr's death. Well, that's not a fair comment. Essentially, you are a saint because you're holy or died a martyr's death. But Paul Collins is saying here uh, that can... You'll never, though, be officially recognized if you've got certain political persuasions in addition to that. And he quotes, The courageous Archbishop Oscar Romero was killed by a right-wing death squad in El Salvador in 1980, while celebrating Mass. Now that's true, and that was a heinous crime. Nothing could justify that atrocity. Then he goes on to say, But to make him a saint could have implied papal approval of liberation theology. And that was anathema to the Vatican because of its supposed Marxist overtones. He's right there in the sense that that was a complicating factor. Let's not be cynical and hostile against the Catholic Church for that reason. When he says liberation theology had supposed Marxist overtones, he's being very gentle. It certainly was permeated very heavily by Marxist ideology. And this is 1980. This is the midst of the Cold War. This is the midst of the struggle against Soviet Russia and Communist China. We have a Pope from a country, Poland, who is subject to a materialist and atheist dictatorship as well as foreign occupation. The Church was um, officially not going to be smiling on atheistic and materialist ideologies, especially if they masqueraded under... Jesus the revolutionary, or Jesus the first revolutionary. Paul Collins goes on to give another example. Nowadays, with the secular socialist government in power in Spain, which I will add is very hostile to the Catholic Church, at the moment it's proposing new legislation to regulate all religious um, signs, statues, posters that appear in public. Okay. Regulate is a euphemism for eventual abolition, in my opinion. Anyway, it goes on to say nowadays with a secular socialist government in power in Spain and church state relations strained, the adaptering four hundred and ninety eight priests and nuns killed during the Spanish Civil War by Socialist Republicans clearly has political implications. This is precisely what Benedict XVI did in October 2007, and in case the present day socialists missed the point, he said martyrdom quote, is an important witness in today's secularized society. I don't know what Paul Collins is trying to achieve by this commentary. The Spanish Civil War, for whatever reasons that occurred, I won't go into that now, but who were, the, who were the opponents in that case? We had Franco's fascists on one side, who led the revolt against the Republican government. And fascism is not a good thing. The Church has never approved it. They had, not necessarily on their side, but fighting in their bracket were also the Carlists, who were more a more royalist. Um, Faction and very heavily influenced by Catholic principles. What were they up against? Communists? Socialists? Anarchists? Atheists? This was a battleground where foreign powers intervened. Fascist Germany, Italy on behalf of Franco, Stalin and communist movements around the world on behalf of the Republicans. There's no 100% good on one side. The church always teaches, in a sense, well, in reality, to always support the lesser of two evils if you don't have a choice. And i make this as a personal comment and not on behalf of the church. For all the faults of Franco, he and the slash Carlos were, at that time, the lesser of the two evils. And that's admitting that Franco and his movement had evils, But if the the communists were to prevail in Spain at that time, it would have been a total disaster for the church and Christians repeating what was happening in Soviet Russia with the repression of the churches and millions of people of faith being murdered there. And uh, Anyway, I'll just leave that at that that Paul Collins goes on to say, lay people, especially married laity, are under, underrepresented as saints. Now, that's true. Historically, that's the case. But the, what the explanation he gives for that is not correct. He says, the implication is that sexual satisfaction is incompatible with sanctity. Actually, that's not the implication at all. And especially not during the time of John Paul II is Paul Collins aware of theology of the body and the way that that wonderful teaching portrays in a positive sense the beauty and the magnificence of of married life, human sexuality in the context of marriage, etc. And Paul says, your best chance as a lay person is to get martyred. Now there's cynicism and mockery there. But the reality is, of course you've got a preponderance of religious and priests because they've got religious orders who have resources and time and personnel to back up this whole process. Lay people don't necessarily have that support. So there's some truth in what he's saying, but the reasons he gives are false by implying that the church looks down on human sexuality. Now this is, I'll top it off for Paul Collins. Part of John Paul's streamlining was to reduce the need for miracles Now only two are needed, one for beatification, one for canonization. Some would like to see this requirement dispensed with. Who are they? Who are those some in the church? He doesn't name them. For us today, well, who's us? Is he speaking on behalf of the whole church, Catholics? What does he mean by us? For us today, real miracles are not the suspension of natural processes, as in unexplained medical cures. But something like widespread international agreement to do something about climate change would have been a miracle if everyone had agreed at Copenhagen. What do we see? It's part of a theology of demythologising, as they call it. This is a mindset of those theologians who look at Scripture and say all these miracle accounts of Jesus and the apostles, they didn't really happen. They're fictions invented by the 2nd century church to exaggerate the claims of Jesus, the disappointed community. Jesus didn't return as expected to keep the business going, so so to speak. Let's glorify this Christ into a God, give him power to miracles. Miracles don't happen now. That means they didn't happen then. That's how they reason. I wouldn't be surprised if that's the underlying mentality or theology of Paul Collins. Now, I'm, I think what I'll do, I'll do this last set of um, comments from the uh, bishop, the Anglican Bishop of North Sydney, and then I'll conclude or open up for a few questions. There's a whole host of other comments I've got here, which I won't go into because of lack of time, but after uh, following a lot of these articles and commentaries in the Herald in particular is a blog where people can write their contributions, and you get a couple of hundred at times. Again, it's around 80 to 90% hostile to Catholicism for various reasons. I've got three here. Uh, I don't know if I've got time to go into them, but they're very caustic, very hostile. But we'll look at Bishop Glenn Davies first. And he wrote in the Australian, uh, and it was reported verbatim in CAF News website, December 24, 2009. And Bishop Glenn Davies says... McKillop no more saintly than others, and this is what he has to say. No one wishes to belittle Mary McKillop's achievements in Australia, the founding of a religious order, and her work among the poor, with the establishment of an orphanage, a woman's refuge, and a home for older women. Bishop Davies said in an article published on the Sydney Anglican Diocese website the Australian report. So this has the official permission of the Anglican Diocese, these comments. He goes on to say, but to award such a person with sainthood for these achievements and to alleged miracles is to misunderstand what the Bible describes as the qualifications of a saint. Put simply, anyone whose sins have been forgiven by God through faith in Jesus Christ is a saint. Now let's look at what he's saying here. This is going back to classical 16th century controversy over justification. How are we justified? The Anglican thesis, this is Sydney Anglican thesis, which is evangelical, fundamentalist, Calvinist. Justification is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Accept him as your personal Lord and Savior. Faith alone. What Bishop Davis is saying is that the Catholic view of justification is a works-based justification. He's saying, okay, you're canonising Mary MacKillop because of her wonderful works and miracles. You're saying she's a saint because of her works. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible said we're we're saints and everyone who believes in Jesus and accepts him is a saint. Very simplistic. But there's the divide. Faith-based justification versus works-based justification. The Catholic Church is against the Bible by believing in works-based justification. This is another talk in itself. But that's not what the Catholic Church is saying here. Works are totally useless without faith. This is Catholic teaching. What comes first is faith. What must grow from that for a person who lives in faith, especially as an adult, over years, is hope and love. St Paul doesn't say at the end of chapter 13 in 1 Corinthians and the greatest of these is faith. He says there's faith, hope and love and the greatest of these is love. And in Galatians 5-6 he says what counts is a faith that works in love. What Mary McKillop is doing is just that. A faith that worked in love. A faith that lived in hope and produced fruits out of love of God. Mary McKillop wasn't going around piling up works believing I need to get this amount of work done in order to get to heaven. Mary McKillop was doing what she was doing out of love of God above all things and neighbour as ourselves. She was obeying the commandments. Three commandments about love of God. Seven commandments concerning love of neighbor. And Jesus said, if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. It's Matthew nineteen seventeen. What does St. Paul say? 2 Corinthians five ten. We die and we come before the judgment seat of Christ. We'll be we judged for what we have done in the body, good or bad. Look at Matthew 25. The judgment, the last judgment those, the goats on the left, those, the sheep on the right. Why did the sheep on the right enter into the kingdom of the Heavenly Father? Because of the good works they did, but not works done in isolation, but works done in faith. All our works are God's works. They're done in response to his to his prevenient grace. We just have to respond and respond generously. And Mary MacKillop responded... To the grace to a heroic degree. She exhibited the theological virtue, the faith, hope, and charity, and the moral virtue to a heroic degree. Bishop Davies looks at the scripture and, and correctly sees that Christians are called saints. And yes, those who are in a state of grace, in friendship with God, are saints. That could include us here tonight, even me perhaps. Okay? Now, But this is that's the common definition of saint with a small S. But listen to what the Scripture says in Matthew 13, 23. The parable of the sower of the seed. What happens to the good seed? Sorry, what happens to the seed that falls into the good soil? What does it produce? Who can remember? Tell me. Hundred? What else? Sixty and thirty. I'll read it to you. But as for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. Now, Christ is saying here, these are all good people. They've all heard the word, they've kept it, and they've acted on it. But not all the same. Now we know what happens to other seed that falls along the path, that gets burnt by the, by the heat of the sun, that falls among the thorns. They're the reprobate, sadly. But the good are 160. Now you notice something about the good. They're not all the same. In Calvinist theology, all the good are the same. Because our works are worthless. They are unmeritorious. All you receive is an external declaration that you are justified and that declaration is the same for everybody. So there's no degrees of sainthood or sanctity in classical Calvinist theology. There might be degrees of sanctification, but not justification. But in here, what we see in Matthew 13, 23, is we see people respond to different degrees, different levels of generosity to God's grace. And yes, the 30 is a saint, and the 60 is a saint, but with the small s. The 100 is the saint with the capital S. The, The Catholic Church's formal public process of canonization concerns listing the hundreds. It's the hundreds who practice sanctity to a heroic degree. Then Bishop Davies goes on to say, the second problem with the canonisation process was that it drew on human analysis of a so-called miracle. Well, what about the miracles mentioned in the Bible? Those people who saw Jesus do miracles, or St Peter and St Paul do miracles, they were engaged in human analysis either. They didn't believe the miracles of Jesus or Peter or Paul because they read them in the Bible. There was no Bible to read, no New Testament to read. They believed those miracles because they saw them face to face and applied a human process to acknowledge them. Now, in Jewish literature that opposes Jesus, for example, the Babylonian Talmud, there's no denial that Jesus did wonders. Only that he practiced magic. He was called in Greek magos. Magos, la flanos, in Greek meant magician and deceiver of the people. So, they were, so the enemies of Jesus of Nazareth saw that he did wonders, and they engaged in a human process to analyze and come to the conclusion it's of the devil, it's of Beelzebub. He is doing, he is practicing magic that he obtained while in Egypt, and he's deceiving the people. That's a human process. But there was other people engaged in a human process who said, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Who saw and believed both Jesus, Peter, and Paul. So this idea that you know the Vatican process is a human process is a red herring. In fact, it's a church's process, based on the most rigorous medical and scientific standards in the world. And it's a critical, critical process. which will will, and has denied many claims of miracles. Then he goes on to say, who can prove that the reported miracles were actually the work of Mary McKillar? says Bishop Davies. Well, because the people in question, particularly the latest one, who's still alive, are saying, well, I was only invoking Mary MacKillan. He says, did the persons healed pray only to Mary, or did they also pray to God? Now here his theology and thinking is befuddled. He's saying maybe the woman in question prayed both to Mary MacKillop and God. Well, okay, be consistent, because to do that is still a sin in your theology. It's still a form of polytheism. You're praying to God and a dead saint. Why would God? even in that case, grant a miracle to a woman who's also praying to another dead saint. If he was to be consistent in his theology and apply his theology consistently, then even the woman praying to God and Mary MacKillop should not have received the miracle. And then he goes on to say, to conclude, even if they pray to Mary MacKillop, what evidence is there that it was Mary MacKillop's intercession that healed them? He's repeating itself and it's befuddled thinking. The evidence is clear in the examination. She is the candidate to receive the miracle, while specifically invoking Mary MacKillop and no other person. And to just correct the theology, to make it absolutely clear once and for all, it is not Mary MacKillop, it is not St. Peter, it's not St. Paul who is doing the miracle, as first called. All miracles, every miracle is performed wholly and solely by God as first cause. God though uses St. Peter, St. Paul, Elijah, Moses, Mary McKillop, Blessed Peter Amad whoever it may be, as an instrument to perform the miracles. To, so that the people can acknowledge the people witnessing can acknowledge these people as true agents, prophets, apostles, saints of God and listen to their message and accept their message. Listen to their example and follow their example. Well, I think that's enough for tonight. We'll leave it there. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit radio dot org dot au